I'm Jeremy Holt, and this is who I am. Hi, Jeremy. Hey. Hey, thank you for, for doing the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I actually was listening to some of your past episodes, and I, I like the the range of guests you have. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been trying to get, actually, uh, it's funny, I've been trying to get more more female guests, and it seems like every time I book a, a female guest, then three male guests <laughs> express interest, and suddenly it's, the, 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 it's still skewered. But... Um, um, you're not female, but um, you you did agree to do the show, which is great, and it's uh, it's nice to actually finally be talking to you. You're someone new, I think. I'm trying to remember what order, like the very early days of um, Twitter and, and social media like that. But I think you were, you were around in the very very early days that I joined, and um, uh, we we followed each other from way back then. I think nine years ago. Does that sound right? Is it? Yeah, that sounds right. I was actually thinking about this a couple of days ago um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been doing comics for about, I'd say almost 10 years. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. And, and I was thinking, we've never actually met at a convention, have we? No, no, I haven't been doing that many conventions, unfortunately. I've been, because um, you're East Coast, right? Yeah. Yeah, and everything I've been doing has either been West Coast. I think the furthest east I've gotten so far has been um, Arizona, <laughs> which isn't oh, wow. that far okay. east at all. Um, I was going to go to uh, space, and I was inquiring about New York, um, but work kind of got in the way of, of me pursuing those fully. So um, someday, someday I'll get out east. But yeah, we haven't we haven't met in person yet. Okay, I, yeah, I guess I just... I follow you on, on most of the social media platforms, so it feels like I've met you. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, you, did you grow up on the East Coast? Uh, no, I grew up overseas. Um, oh, okay. Uh, kind of the cliff notes are um, I was born in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a triplet, so I have two identical triplet brothers. Uh, we were all adopted together at about the age of one. Mm-hmm. Um, adopted by... Um, a white couple, uh, who my parents, my mom's from New York. My dad's from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We grew up in New Jersey for a few years. And then, uh, my dad is an engineer. So his job kind of took us all over. So we moved to Italy for about a year and a half, mm. which I was too young to remember. Um, but then Singapore for six years, which is basically my childhood, mm-hmm. a year and a half in England, um, four years in Norway and then finished the last two years of high school in Texas. Wow. That's quite a trip. Did you, uh, were you, uh, uh creating as a writer, as a, as a child, as you moved around or is that, um, something that kind of happened later on? <clears throat> um, you know, I've thought about that because I've always been creative. Um, I always did art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did, I ended up doing theater and art, uh, in high school, um, but I never really wrote anything, although my parents, uh, this past Christmas were, are in the process of downsizing their house. So we had to go through boxes of old childhood stuff. And 
I just found, you know, stacks and stacks of these journals that my mom forced me to write in. Like every day she'd say, write for, I think it was like 20 minutes and write as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. And I never completed any of those journals. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I guess that's kind of where it started, I think. Uh, And I didn't actually get into writing comics or any kind of stories until uh, well after college. Mm Mm-hmm. And as, is that something that you and your brothers had to do for the the journals? Or? Um, I don't. I, I want to say yes, but they don't seem to have any of theirs, or at least they didn't find <laughs> them. Um, although I did read through a couple of them, and I just cringed. It was like ninety nine percent about girls. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's all I wrote about for like five years of my childhood was just girls that I liked. Hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I think. <laughs> It's a common experience, I think, at a certain age. Um, the you mentioned that uh, uh, comics writing, uh, in particular, is something that 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 is, uh, that's uh, where you sort of started to um, to break into writing. And um, is that something that that you always had comics, or, or were you a fan of comics at a young age? I was a fan of the art. Um, uh-huh. My oldest brother, who is um, several years older than me. Uh, was into comics, was into D&D, really exposed me to all of that um, stuff. And so I was familiar with like the X-Men. I think mostly when I think about it, the earliest comics I might have flipped, flipped through would have been something Jim Lee might have drawn, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really read them. And it wasn't until um, I moved back to New York. I was in New York from 2005, 2006, moved home, moved home for a couple of years and moved back to New York and uh, I decided to kind of, well, I guess it started with, I was visiting my older brother and he had, I think, like the afternoon off from his kids. Um, and he's like, do you want to go to a coffee shop and read some comics? I was like, sure. Mm. <laughs> and he handed me Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. And I was blown away. Mm. And I I said to him, I was like, is this, is this what comics are right now? He's like, no, that's like 20 years old. (laughs) So as soon as I got back to the city, I went right to the nearest comic book shop and I just was like, what are people reading? And I got into a lot of the vertigo titles like trans metropolitan Mm -hmm. scout why the last man DMZ. Um, and that's kind of where it all took off. Mm. Do you, uh, were you exposed to any of the, uh, or were comics a part of your earlier life when you were traveling around, or was it specifically the American um, uh, format of comics that you that you remember? Specifically American. I, I don't think I was exposed to comics really at all um, in middle school or high school. Mm-hmm. At least I didn't know anyone reading them. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of, I, I feel like I came to it very, very late. Mm. Now, did you think to yourself as you were were reading them, especially with the, the, the uh, when you went into the shop and you started buying like um, Vertigo titles and stuff like that? Did you think to yourself, "Oh, this is something that I could do. This is something that I want to be involved in"? Or were you a fan for a long while? Um, not initially. I didn't think I could do it. I I just kind of devoured them because they're just so great. And it wasn't until I read Why the Last Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading that series uh, right around the 2008 crash. So I was I was living in a an apartment in the West Village of New York that I couldn't really afford. Um, my bank account was zero. My credit card was maxed out, and I had about a, a full bag of cashews that I had to 
last for five days on. <laughs> so I realized I couldn't go out with my friends. Um, so I just stayed in and decided to try to write a comic book. Mm. Um, and what started out as five days kind of stretched out into like three months. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I was like, I want to try to do this, even though I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. <laughs> Had you seen any scripts or anything like that, but or like the, the bare bones of, of comics before that? or No, no, no. I, I didn't get into the kind of trying to understand the process of it until probably one or two years later. But um, I graduated from the Savannah College of Art and Design and mm-hmm. I got a degree in film, specifically sound design. So I, I didn't really know any sequential art people. Um, so I didn't really have anyone to lean on, but my brother also went there and he graduated in the computer art department, but he knew, um, a friend who went through sequential and she was working at the time at dark horse. And he said, Hey, I can give it to her to give a read. I was like, sure. And she read it and she gave me a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. Um, she didn't really give me any notes on formatting. Um, but I think it was like a couple years later, um, Curtis Weeb reached out to me about co-hosting a writer's podcast. And at that point I had been looking online. I, I managed to email Joshua Dysert who gave me some pointers on his formatting. And I found Jason Aaron's scripts online and I kind of just mashed those two together because I liked the format and it was really easy to edit. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Hmm. What was the program? Do you remember what program you were using to write in? Um, he was using office uh microsoft word and he said he had hired someone to like set set up all the settings so it was kind of like i I imagine it's like what um uh final draft is where it's it's very um specific Mm -hmm. and like the formatting is very specific and i I think he didn't want to worry about that but he had hired someone and i didn't i wasn't going to hire someone so i kind of i started using uh apple's pages which is their word processing application and, and i kind of was able to figure out a format that I could, uh, a template I could use, um, mm-hmm. that just made editing quicker because when I'd have to go back and edit, it was like revising one page. I'd have to revise like all the other pages just for the spacing and, you know, just the layout of like when you print it out that they print on the same page and mm-hmm. whatnot. What so, mm. um, you said that you studied uh, film. Is that what you, where you were heading at that stage? Yeah, I, well, I was too far into the, program to say to myself, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to stay here for three more years and, and figure something else out. Mm-hmm. So I was like, maybe my junior year, I was, I, I knew I wasn't, I was going to get a degree, but I wasn't really going to pursue it that hard. I, I graduated and I worked as a sound editor at a post-production studio in Soho for about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really wasn't, um, the medium of art that I was looking for. I I'd spent four years trying to find something that was more of a reflex than a conscious decision. And I was about convinced that maybe I didn't need to be creative, which is how I slipped into working at Apple and became a, a genius and have been working tech since then as a day job. But mm-hmm. um, it wasn't uh, until I started writing that, that script in the fall of 2008 where uh, this was a reflex. It was like, I can't wait to do this. I think about story all the time. I think about plots. I think about character development and it, I should just write it down. Hmm. What's your, your process for, for working through a story? Do you, are you, are you a notebook person or is it more of a, a thought and feeling process that, that leads to you just sitting down to, to hash it out? Or? I started with notebooks. I really like the longhand. Um, 
it just quiets the mind to sit in front of a blank page rather than a blank uh, document on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, my process has changed a lot since 2008, but uh, I learned something really great when on the podcast that I did with uh, Curtis Weaver and Ryan K. Lindsay, um, we ended up creating a segment where we interviewed creators and I had the fortune of interviewing Joe Casey and he had told me his process about how he writes dialogue at the very end. So, Mm. um, what I do is I'll, I'll outline, um, a story. Usually I'll try to contain it to one, one page and then, uh, break it down to issue breakdowns and I do issue outlines. Uh, and this is really where all the heavy lifting is because by the time I get to the scripts, it's pretty quick Mm -hmm. and I will write an entire script, um, page counts, uh, panel descriptions, all of it. So I want to write it uh, well enough that you could read it and you could understand what's going on. You just might not know what anyone's saying. Mm -hmm. And then I go in and I do a dialogue pass uh, at the very end, um, which is what Joe does. And and I really like that process. And because the thing that I get hung up on the most is dialogue. I could waste three days trying to figure out (laughs) a conversation. Mm -hmm. And this kind of keeps it fresh and, I mean, I'll, I'll maybe make notes of dialogue as I'm scripting, but, um, yeah. So at this point, if, if everything's going really, really well from the outline to a rough draft, I can do in maybe two or three days Hmm. for an issue. Hmm. And, uh, is that also something the, for the, the dialogue side of it, is that something that you feel comes, um, I mean, is this at the stage when art is actually being produced or is just still at the scripting stage and, and you get a better idea of page layout from your script layouts? And um, I really, the dialogue, you know, other than trying to keep it fresh, uh, I was making mistakes early on where I didn't provide enough description and I was focusing, focusing too much on dialogue. So artists mm-hmm. would constantly be emailing me. It's like, what do you really mean by this? <laughs> Because I wasn't actually looking at it from a visual standpoint as far as, you know, I, I'm not married to my scripts in the sense that if I write a very specific camera angle that I expect the artist to keep that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I give them the script, I always say, you know, change it however you need, add panels, remove panels. As long as the pacing with the dialogue is intact, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, yeah, saving the dialogue for last, it kind of helps me see the, the comic in my mind a, a little bit better. Hmm. Is um, that that uh, that approach, is that uh, similar to um, like film scripting where it's a page, you, you roughly do like a page per page or, or like how how dense are your scripts? Because um, you, you said there that you, you used to get hung up on the dialogue and miss out a lot of descriptions. Have they become more uh, descriptive as you've gone on, as you've worked on? Yes, I, I think they have. I, I also embed a lot of uh, photo references mm-hmm. in, in panel descriptions. Um, so, like, usually with some opening establishing shot, you know, the description might be half a page long. Um, and I've never really collaborated with anyone that doesn't like that, so I haven't <laughs> stopped doing it. Um, and I, I know people who try to limit a script or a, a script page to one page like you cannot make it longer than that which i don't really adhere to that mm-hmm. you know page one could be three pages long technically yeah is uh, music uh, something that you listen to when you're writing it's a big part of um, of the work that you create it seems there's, there's, there seems to be um 
a kind of rhythm and a sense of of sound to your writing but uh, do, uh, do... yeah absolutely um it's the quickest way for me to get into the headspace of writing mm-hmm. because i have a day job i've basically created this schedule uh where i work at a high school doing tech support so i work from 7 30 to 3 30 or sometimes 7 30 to 4 mm-hmm. and basically from 4 to 7 before my wife comes home uh i write monday through friday so mm-hmm. I have to write as much as I can in three hours. And then on the weekends, I spend literally all day. Um, and by doing that, you know, the quickest way for me to kind of quiet the noise and like really focus is just put on either a song or an album that is kind of inspiring me to write the story. And typically I'll actually just put one song on loop and I will listen to the same song for eight hours and I don't even notice. It becomes like background noise at some point. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife thinks it's kind of crazy. <laughs> is um is having that schedule something that that helps you? Do you ever get uh, blocks, or do you have a way of breaking through the blocks, or is it just like a, a muscle memory at that stage where you're you're so disciplined for your schedule and and you know you have to write at that time? Yeah, it's become muscle memory. I don't really get story blocks. I will get story blocks in the sense that if I'm trying to develop something and I can't expand it beyond a basic concept and I usually give myself about a month and if I can't stretch it out into something it doesn't have legs then I just move on mm-hmm. um but yeah at this point um I don't really have a whole lot of time uh in the day so I just have created a routine um similar to working out for me it's like once I do it if I can do it for four weeks straight then I can make it into a routine mm-hmm um, one of the things that you said, and this was when I first started doing this this uh, podcast, this was one of the, the things that m- kind of inspired me to start doing it, was that um, uh, you, you have a day job and you have like a, a regular scheduled um, career that you have to you have to go to a place of work for a certain amount of time. And the uh, one of the things that interested me early on was this idea of people who create stuff um especially if they have a day job, if they have something that they go to. And it seems, um, especially with the time frame of like 2008, it seems like more people who are creating things are working a regular job or a job that isn't in the field that they create in and then creating beyond that. Is Do you think that's something that, is, is the creating uh, something that helps you have this, you, know, you, you have a day job and you go to it and creating helps you kind of not not like a hobby but it gives you it gives you something that that separates your mind from your day job or do you think people are more and more needing to have a day job in order to pursue things creatively uh that's a great question i think honestly i feel like all my friends that write comics or novels have all quit their day jobs (laughs) like the last three or four years and i'm like oh i'm still kind of on behind the velvet curtain trying to get in. Um, but the more I think about it, the more I realize the freelance lifestyle does not appeal to me mm-hmm. really. Um, having to depend on my creative work to pay my bills, uh, would be extremely stressful. And I give so much credit to my friends that can do it. Uh, I'm totally fine and have accepted that I will probably have a day job for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's okay because you know, it, it keeps my, 
my interest and my drive to create uh, intact when I come home from a you know, really mind-numbingly boring day like I had today, just standing at my desk waiting for tech tickets and nothing happens. And, you know, it's nice to come back and, and revisit these worlds that I've created. And it's like kind of seeing old friends in my mind and picking up where they left off, picking up where conversations have left off and, mm-hmm. and what. Um, how long from when you wrote a script, when you decided, when you had that moment of sitting down with your, your bag of uh, pistachios and you said, I've got to, I've got to write something and create something. How long was it before you had, you, uh, started to collaborate with, with an artist and then how long before you had something published? Do you remember the timeline? I do. I do. Uh, I, I wrote a, a column for Multiversity Comics, probably five years ago at this point that mm-hmm. I basically documented this whole process. So, um, I was working at the Apple store off West 14th street in New York city, um, as a genius. And, uh, it was around the time that when my brother gave my script to his friend who was an artist at dark horse, she mentioned that my college holds an editor's day every year where four or five editors come out and do portfolio reviews. So she put me in contact with the sequential art chair and I sent the script and I mean, I look at that script and it was not good, but he somehow saw potential and he's like, yeah, why don't you come out? Uh, here's the list of editors, pick three that you want to try to be sat with and I'll try to get you at least two, your mm-hmm. top two. I was like, okay. So at that time, um, the ones that I got placed with was uh, Dan Votto of Slave Labor Graphics and Joan Hilty of DC Comics, Vertigo. Mm-hmm. So. I went, uh, I was probably the only guy there without a portfolio. I had a handful of script pages and, uh, I went and had a meeting with, with Joan and, and it's an interesting story because I thought it went really well. She seemed pretty receptive to my idea, but she obviously said it needed a lot more work, but she wasn't really prepared to give me those notes. So I got back to New York. I decided to write her a thank you note. Mm-hmm. and to her kind of like old school like oh you know and it got returned to me for insufficient address and i'm like this is the address of dc comics i know it is because i'm looking at her business card <laughs> so i was at a comic book shop that that's no longer uh around but this place called bergen street comics in brooklyn mm-hmm. and i was good friends with the owner tom and his wife amy and tom was like yeah there's this guy that that comes in here a lot his name is brom Ravel, and he's doing a book at oni now um, called Gorillas, but apparently he pitched that book to John Vertigo on it. So, you know, he said he had to wait three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd wait three months, and if she, you don't hear back from her, then just abandon help. I was like, okay. So I waited like a month, and I was like, I don't know what to do, because clearly she didn't get my, my note. So I think I'm just going to go over to the offices and, and somehow put it in her mailbox. Mm-hmm. So I go over there, and the security guard... Uh, was not very helpful because he was like, there's like five or six floors of DC comics. Like you need to know exactly who it's going to. And I was like, it says here, senior editor, John Hilting. He's like, I can't help you. So I sent her an email and I guess it was, she didn't take it very well. Cause she's like, you don't show up to an editor's office unannounced. Mm -hmm. And she's like, kind of like, good luck. And I'm like, Oh my God. (laughs) So I figured I shot myself in the foot. Uh, so a month later, uh, I'm at work and I see in the queue for a Mac appointment is Joan Hilty. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> but I get the concierge. I'm like, seat this woman with me, please. 
So this woman sits down and it's not Joan. I'm like, okay, maybe coincidence that they have the same name, but whatever. So I don't, I don't say anything. And then I'm helping this woman with her phone syncing with her computer. And she, you know, it's very easy to fix And she's like, I just need to make sure this works. Can you text or type something in my calendar on my phone? I need to see it show up on my computer. So I typed in free comic book day. She looks at me and she says, free comic book day, huh? I was like, yeah. She's like, my spouse works at uh, DC Comics. I was like, I know who your spouse is. And then she looks at me and she says, did you show up at her office unannounced a month ago? And I was like, oh my God. I, I was like, I did. And she's like, oh honey, you don't do that. She's like, but you've totally saved my ass right now. So if you would like, I, I will bring up your name in pleasant dinner conversation. I was like, that'd be amazing. And then I think less than a week later, Joan wrote me this super long email about everything I need to think about when writing a comic book script. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, from there, uh, I ended up linking up with uh, an artist who has become a very good friend of mine, but, um, he, this guy, David Cole actually did a couple issues of birds of prey for DC, mm-hmm. probably the year before that I met him and we had mutual friends and we got connected. So he did five pages of this comic I wrote and pitched it around. And, um, I ended up sending it to IDW's, um, letters page, mm-hmm. which was completely unsolicited. And, an editor there actually looked at it and emailed me back and said, the art looks great. Story's interesting. Um, send me, you know, the script and the pitch. Um, so I'd say, let's see, that was 2009. I'd say in 2012 is when I kind of had my first published work through uh, 215 Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd done Southern Dog through them mm-hmm. uh, with artist Alex Diotto, who I actually just collaborated with on a book that we have coming out in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was about three years. Yeah. Yeah. Alex is, uh, it's, um, skip to the end is the, the book that you just, uh, worked with him on. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, that, it, the, the funny thing about our story is that, uh, while you were telling it, I, I was thinking the, uh, it seems like with comics that there's, you know, there, there there are so many uh, creative fields, and there's so many um, uh, ways of getting into creative fields. But it always seems like comics is such a mystery, and no one really knows how things happen and and why they happen. And, and there's no standards. That's the thing. There's yeah. No, I mean, if if there isn't even a standard format for comic book scripts, I think everything else is like the wild west. <laughs> And, you know, I've had to kind of re- reevaluate the term of breaking into comics. And I think you've probably thought about this a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone's story is different and it depends on which publisher you're trying to get in at. And it's all about timing. Um, I've had so many false starts because timing just wasn't in my favor. Everything else was. Everything seemed good to go. And projects that were supposed to be announced then just weren't. And um, it's kind of made me reevaluate uh, how to make comics. And I'm changing my perspective on this whole, I need to be published. Like I'm not about to go self publish and I'm not about to start a Kickstarter. Cause that just seems so daunting to me, <laughs> but I think just keeping my expectations in check and it's taken about 10 years of maybe 50 plus rejections to finally get my expectation at the level that it's not soul crushing when something doesn't work out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did you do the podcast for that you were? 
Uh, we did that in about a year and a half. Hmm. Uh, Curtis stepped away at one point, then Ed Brisson came in, and then we just couldn't keep it up, I think, with the schedules and whatnot. Um, hmm. You're all on completely different time zones, right? That Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ryan's in Australia. Ed's in Canada. Well, Ed and Curtis were at one point living in the same city. To, well, they were both in the same city, in Vancouver and then Kelowna. And then now I think I just heard Ed is moving to Halifax. So mm -hmm. they're in completely different places now. But Did, have, have you met any of these, of, uh, of, of Ryan or Ed or Curtis? Have you actually met them in person or is, is your relationship with them um, electronic as well? Um, I, I met, I think I met Ed, Ed was the per first person I met and it was funny meeting Ed because a friend of mine who's not in comics, he's, he's a motion graphics artist. He had heard I was getting into comics. So he sent me this, this web comic that he was totally into and it was called murder book. And I was like, oh, and I read a couple, I was like, man, these stories really stay with me. And then I met Ed at a party in, I think I was in Toronto. I think, no, uh, yeah, for, for fan expo, I was, I was there and I was at a party and I, I meet Ed and I don't know who he is. And then I say, what do you work on? He's like, Oh, I work on this, this, and I have this online comic called murder book. And I was like, it was maybe two years between first reading that and then meeting him. And I was, and it just clicked. I was like, you're the writer of that. Uh, and then Curtis, I met initially online because I was writing reviews for an entertainment website and I reviewed his comic in the intrepids. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't it was several years later before ryan curtis and i all met at emerald city hmm. uh, back in 2012 i think um and yeah i i think i've for the most part most of the people that i i converse with on a semi-regular basis or not regular basis on social media mm -hmm. i've met at some point yeah i think i i, I was at emerald city when Ryan was there, definitely. I wonder if that was the same year. I don't know if he's been there multiple times or. I think he's been twice because okay. uh, it's just such a crazy trip from Australia for him. Yeah. I don't know how he <laughs> had the energy with the jet lag to just do a three day con. I mean, uh -huh. it's amazing. Do you like doing cons? Uh, you know, I'd say a few years ago I would have been like, yes. And then maybe a year ago I was like, no. <laughs> uh mostly because and i was having this conversation with um with ryan actually on twitter and, and jim zepikovich about graphic novels versus single issues mm -hmm. and it feels like the trend right now is that most publishers are kind of leaning when it comes to creator and comics to lean towards a graphic novel format because mm -hmm. uh, i think it's less risk and less overhead for them if they just print one book um and for me, I've never really had complete books. I mean, Southern Dog took a couple of years for it to finally get collected as a trade. Mm -hmm. um, so being at conventions and having these single issues, I, I, I hate selling these single issues because it was an inevitable question that the person passing by would say, where can I get the other issues? And I'd say, oh, they're still in production. Yeah. And then just put the single issue down and walk away. Yeah. Um, so this year, 2018, is going to be the first year where I should have two, three, if not four books uh, by the end of 2018 that I can table with. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never really tabled consistently. And I know friends that have, and it really makes a difference as, as far as fan base and overall experience 
I know that can be extremely exhausting, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think that's the one aspect of this whole career as a comic book creator that I haven't really taken full advantage of, which I plan to do for the, in mm-hmm. the next year. So, um, uh, skip, we've, we've skipped to the end. Um, that, so the, the, that's the collection because it was, was it four issues initially? Yeah, it was initially four issues uh, printed as a mini series through Heavy Metal. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then the trade just never came out, and I decided to shop it elsewhere, and it ended up at Inside Comics maybe a year later. Mm-hmm. How much um, how much involvement did you have with the, the look of the book and the design, or is that something that you you uh, step back from? Um, I have an amazing designer on my side, Tim Daniel. Mm-hmm. So with Tim, I just really I said have fun, like do whatever you want. Um, you know, he would ask like, what do you think of this? And I, I'll give my two cents, but mostly it was all him. So, uh, he's designed all the logos for all of my books for the last five or six years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met at Emerald, Emerald City in 2011, the first time I went at that time, he was working for Shadowline, Image Shadowline. And we just met that way. And I had shown him a pitch I was working on and he really loved it. And he designed the logo for it. And We've just been friends ever since, and we actually co-wrote um, Skinned, which mm-hmm. came out through Insight in November, but it was originally published digitally by Monkey Brain Comics. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is the Was it something that you wrote with Alex in mind? No. Um, I actually didn't have an artist in mind when I wrote it. Uh, Alex, it just turned out to be good timing. I wasn't sure if he'd be right for it because he's just so much younger, mm-hmm. uh, and I know he's not... He's, he completely missed the MTV generation. Um, so I didn't know, I didn't know if it was going to be a lot of work for him to kind of get immersed in all of that. But I, I sent him the pitch, sent him some reference images. And I said, here are the three main band members. And he just sent me character sketches. And I was like, yep, you're it. It's perfect. <laughs> so, and, uh, you, you touched on it there saying about the MTV generation and the kind of time period. It's, it's very, um, linked to, um, I guess like early nineties is the the kind of time period that, that the story um, evokes. Um, is that something that you, is that an area that interests you with music and with, uh, with art? Um, the nineties thing kind of came about while I was just kind of getting into Nirvana. I, I got into them again. It feels very late. I was, I was just a bit too young to appreciate them when they were at their height of fame. Mm-hmm. It's been in middle school. Um, although I, I have found photos of, of Kurt Cobain and, and the band being in Singapore in 1980 and I was like, Oh my, or 91. I was like, Oh my God, I was there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, just when I got into the band, I, I just became obsessed with their music and I got obsessed with the history of the band. I got obsessed with the grunge DIY movements of the, the early 80s to late 80s in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I just have always believed that music is a form of time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I think I've believed this since high school, but I just never thought of it as a story. And the idea of someone going back to save Kurt Cobain, and if they could, what would that be like, just clicked when I was listening to their music. And that's where kind of the concept uh, first skip to the end came about. Hmm. There's a, there's a few, uh, books out at the moment that, um, 
that uh, have like a, a musical uh, a character that is a, a historical uh, musical figure. Um, you, you don't have them specifically, do you, in the, in the book and skip to the end? No, I decided to, to alter names, even alter the name of the band. But obviously, it's clear enough to a Nirvana fan mm-hmm. who these people are. But initially, the book was going to be an exploration of this fictional version of Kurt. Uh, but I realized that was completely inaccessible. Uh, there's just too much about him. Hmm. I didn't really feel like rewriting his history. So I decided to shift focus to, I mean, the least most well-known member of the band, which is Chris Novoselic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I figured focusing on the bassist and taking the idea that, that this bassist has not moved on, uh, is dwelling in the past, wants to revisit his glory days, and happens to find a guitar that allows him to travel back in time. The problem is, is that he's a raging uh, drug addict, and he's someone suffering drug addictions. The last, the last thing you want to do is enable him to go back to, you know, feeding that that instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this idea of more more than the band. It's about addiction and mm. the different forms that it comes in. Mm. Is that something that you've had in in your life either yourself or with? Uh, someone that you know no i actually had to do um quite a lot of research for that um research that i wasn't initially comfortable doing um my brother my oldest brother who got me into comics is a doctor uh Mm -hmm. and he deals mostly with opioid addiction so he knows all about this stuff and he was educating me on you know what it's like for his patients and he suggested i go to a aa meeting uh, to interact with addicts mm. and there are different formats. So the open discussion is one that allows respectful observers. So I was hesitant. I was really hesitant to go. And my brother really urged me, he said, you're going to get a lot out of this. You, you, you really need to go. Mm. So I attended a few meetings and, uh, it was eye opening. Um, and for me personally, my old roommate who I was living with in Brooklyn, uh, was heavily addicted to meth and it took him several years to finally kick it. But I didn't know him at that point in his life. So when I found out years later, it was kind of a total shock cause I would have never guessed, but that's like the closest I've ever met or known someone who's, who's really struggled with addiction. Mm. Did you, um, did you do a lot of research into, to, uh, uh Kurt Cobain, himself or, or were you just kind of trying to get an idea of that time period through the other uh, bands that are around and or the band themselves rather than him because I remember um, uh, when they were really big I remember reading some interviews with him and he seemed very mercurial and he seemed to like make things up on the fly and yeah he, he really did it, it was like he didn't enjoy interviewing too much so he would mess around and be mischievous with the, the people that were interviewing him and there was a lot of um, stories that kind of you were never sure if they were true or not. Did you did you encounter a lot of that? Or? Oh, absolutely. I, most of the research in the front end was all about him. Hmm. Um, I read a really great biography by Charles Cross called Heavier Than Heaven. Um, Cross wrote for The Rocket, which was a, mag- or a, news- no, it was a magazine or newspaper in Seattle around that time. Uh, so he interviewed all the big bands and he was he spent a lot of time with Nirvana. Um and he is the first to admit that Kurt was a walking contradiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing he did or said could be taken 
as truth and it just depended on his mood and and you know there's a lot of angst that I see in interviews and uh you know I can't imagine with him dealing with depression in such a public forum helped any uh but yeah understanding him really helped me decide how the story was going to end because if I what if I if this story was a possibility and I could go back in time and save him, or if I could get one of the band members to go back and save him, I think you just can't save them. Mm-hmm. Someone like him, you can't save, and it doesn't matter how many points in time you go back to, it's always going to end the same way. I mean, that's my belief with mm-hmm. this story. Mm-hmm. Um, what what else are you working on at the moment? Or are you completely focusing on getting that book out and? I've been focusing on the marketing, uh, which I haven't really done. I recently hired uh, a manager, uh, mm. Amy Brander, who's been totally amazing um, with setting up interviews and pull quotes and reviews and signings and all that. Um, but I did pitch two comic book projects earlier this year that uh, one seems to be um, being well-received uh, by two publishers. I'm just waiting to see if someone sends me a deal memo. Um, but I spent most of last year not doing comics and I wrote a couple of novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually adapted skip to the end into a novel, which when I look at the comic now, I just think it's, it's not even scratching the surface of the story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so wrote that and I'm, I have an idea for a possible follow up for skip to the end, depending on sales. Uh, but I'd like to focus on another band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, Follow-up would be focusing on a fictional version of Joy Division, which mm. is also one of my favorite bands. Um, but if the sales numbers aren't there, I'm pretty certain I'm going to maybe turn that idea into a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, I, I, the second novel I wrote in the fall is basically a young adult version of, of The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. So uh, I need to do a lot of revisions on that. Uh, my agent did not like it. So <laughs> I basically had to throw out a 300 page book, but it's going to be better now. So, yeah. Do you, do you change your approach with, um, when you're writing, uh, prose for novels? Is there, is there still that notebook and then, uh, setting aside a certain amount of time and sitting down and doing it with music playing, or is there a different way of, of approaching that? Um, very different. I, I basically have to write silence. Um, with comics, it's easier to, I mean, everything feels very truncated in, in comparison to writing a novel. Uh, so with novels, you know, I similarly do an outline, which is a lot of the heavy lifting, but as I'm actually writing the prose, to me, it, the prose I like kind of have almost a, a lyrical bounce to them like there's it's kind of like it feels like a song almost the way a paragraph ends or a sentence ends and for me to capture try to capture that mm-hmm. i just have to hear the words uh and sometimes i'll i'll you know write a paragraph and then i read it out loud to myself mm-hmm. um it's a much slower process it's yeah i mean i don't know how i wrote the book in five i mean i do because the book's not any good so uh <laughs> but with comedy it's a lot quicker. It feels like a sprint and, you know, a novel is more like a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you? Um, where, where would you like to direct them? 
Twitter. Uh, I've recently been more active on, so it's just at Jeremy underscore Holt. Um, Instagram, Clump of Trees, I'm pretty active on there. And uh, yeah, if you just checked out the publisher's website, InsideComics.com, or even SimonSchuster.com and just look me up. Uh, Since uh, Inside has a distribution deal with Simon Schuster, all my books are on their website, which is kind of thrilling for me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I'll, I'll put some links in the uh, show notes. And uh, uh, thank you for, for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, this is an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.